Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name's Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to my colleague, Joanna Biggs, who's written a piece in the current issue of the LRB on Simone de Beauvoir. It's a review of three books, Becoming Beauvoir, A Life by Kate Kirkpatrick, Parisian Lives, Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir and Me, a memoir by Deirdre Baer, and the second volume of Beauvoir's Diary of a Philosophy Student, 1928-29, translated by Barbara Claw. But it's also a personal essay about Joanna's own changing view of and relationship with Beauvoir, as a writer, as a thinker, as a historical figure, as a person. Hello, Joe. Hi. So I thought if we begin where, where your piece begins, um, with that, that question that, that Beauvoir was asked more than once, why she'd never written a female character who lived a free life. Um, and that the, um, and her first reply was to say that I've shown women as they are, as divided human beings, and not as they ought to be. And I think your piece sets out to show her as a divided human being, not as, not as who she ought to be, nor as people think she ought to be. Um, and then in a later, you quote a later interview in which she replied um, that there's a certain demandingness that I find a little stupid because it imprisons me, completely fixing me in a kind of feminist concrete block. And your piece sort of begins with that that concrete block that I, I and how how to demolish it, as it were. Mm. It, it's funny seeing um, having you repeat the beginning back to me because actually I realise I didn't start where Beauvoir started. I started with the concrete block. I started backwards, um, and that that sort of was the whole struggle of the piece for me, I suppose. I, so I, I knew her more through her philosophy, through studying her as a student. I was really lucky to be taught by Elizabeth Falaise and Suzanne Dow um, when I was at Oxford. And and so I always had this notion of her. I had the concrete block notion, totally. And I, I, I loved it, man. <laughs> I went to live in Paris and I was in Place Sartre Beauvoir and I couldn't, all I could afford was a coffee at the Café de Flore and me and my friends would sit there and um, you know, do things like steal the kind of logoed coffee, the sort of sugar cubes you get from the cafe de floor with a logo on and just feel like you were living this sort of different life. It had a real glamour, that concrete block for me. Um, and so reading her more and more I, since I was at 18 to so the last 20 years, I've come up against things that I don't like about her and I find difficult about her. And, that I, um, and also things that I find incredibly endearing about her she's completely changed for me as from what she was when I when I was in Paris kind of having my pretentious sips of coffee but um but in a good way I think I think that's a good interaction to have with someone and does that does it change the way you think about her writing as well and how important is the is Beauvoir's life and what we know about her life and the more and more that we learn about her life to her philosophy and her ideas it's one of those things about the idea that a philosopher's biography is a word to go on, the idea that it's important that Socrates drank him not to kill himself and the way that he died, and that's all the idea that that informs the idea of him as a, as a philosopher. But the, there is also an argument that perhaps what Beauvoir wrote in The Second Sex should stand on its own, and it shouldn't matter who she was and what her life was and what she did and whether or not she was able to live up 
to it. But of course, one of the arguments is, of course, you can't possibly. But we are so interested in her life. And is that, and I wonder if that's, if that's a problem or a good thing. I think I go back and forth on this. I mean, she definitely thought of her life as a philosophical experiment in the same way as you're talking about Socrates and Hemlock. She definitely, and that was part of the pact with Sartre, like how do we be free but also be attached? That, that for me is one of the major problems of being a woman. Um, and you have so many patterns that come down to you that shows you how things you have to follow and ways to be free and they seem completely opposed. So I do think it's important that her life her life for her was that so why wouldn't it be for us um and she wrote memoir like she wanted to show how she her intellectual life and she was quite as honest as she sort of could be while they all while everyone was still living about her love life and her personal life and her mother her book about her mother is the most extraordinary honest account of how you can how you can hate a mother who doesn't, who just, who sort of likes the fact that you're famous, but doesn't like you, but also love her, love her for just existing and being, for being able, for having been your mother, I guess. Um, so I think it, I struggle with that because I think at university we were all told we had to pull, pull these strands apart and look at the book in itself. And I do still read like that. And I still do think that's important. But as I get older, I, and I know more writers and I work with more writers, I think that isn't how it, works that's not why you come to write a book you don't come to write a book um completely separate of your life and your own experiences um so I've been more interested in thinking about women the context of their lives and how that and how that produces the work that they produce which maybe is unfashionable old-fashioned or but I it's helped me to understand them what you say about attachments and freedom and, uh, and attachments is that maybe it's wrong of me to think of it this way but there does seem to be that Beauvoir is also often thought of in terms of her relationships with men, with Sartre and with Nelson Argren and with, and with Claude Landsman. And that also is problematic. It's, although, as you say, that idea of how do you be to be free and attached at the same time, and she perhaps managed it better than, than many people do. Yeah, I mean, she was really, really proud of her relationship with Sartre. And so even if I'm disappointed by it at times, I've got to remember that's how she felt about it. She was interesting about this at the end of her life because there was a real move to of sort of second wave feminists saying, let's give up all men completely. Let's live in female communes. Let's sleep with women. Let's sleep with each other. Let's build a whole separate life. And that wasn't how she saw things. But also she did have lesbian relationships and they some of them lasted her whole life. So Olga, Olga was part of her, fam her family. She was the person who Sartre and um, Beauvoir first took as a third person. They both shared that lover and she wrote her first novel about Olga. But she was friends with Beauvoir until Beauvoir died like you could see her life you could write her life the other way you could write it through her female friendships um and her relationship with her sister which was incredibly close um and uh, the relationship with her mother which was troubled but sort of she kept kept at it you know <laughs> um and so there was lots of and the, her final her final love Sylvie Le Bon de Beauvoir who's still living who has become an executor and has had a lesbian relationship with her it seems like but also was a very close friend and cared for her so there are other ways of you could write her life other ways I don't know if I entirely brought that out in the piece but I hope to break shows that, that some of the female thing, female friendships did really really last and also another difficulty for English readers 
until quite recently was that the only tr- translation into English was this one that was done very quickly by a man who, and supposedly he didn't even really understand French very well and he wasn't a philosopher. And so the English, <laughs> the English idea of Beauvoir, at least for those of us who, who can't read French very well, was sort of informed by this bad or inadequate translation. Yeah, so this guy... Mm. So this guy partially, um, he was a zoologist because <laughs> I, I think Blanche Knopf loved the book. It was really big um, in France and she sort of wanted to bring it over quite quickly and so sort of gave it, thought it was all about sex. I don't think she read French and he sort of, sort of went for it and did this translation, but he cut, didn't understand the philosophy, wasn't well read in the existentialist stuff, um, didn't. Um, no, it mistranslated things, cut things out silently. So this translation that we have, even in some ways, I, I still quite like it in some ways. It is the book that, you know, um, Shulamith Firestone read, that all that Betty Friedan, that all the important philosophers who, or important feminist writers who use that book read that version. So I think it is a kind of, it's important, it should stand. And then, of course, there was the well, we had a brilliant piece by Tora Moy about it, but when the new translation came out, made by uh, two women who weren't, again, weren't, didn't know the philosophy and, um, again, had lots of infelicities in the way it was done. And I don't know, this just sort of depresses me. Women's writing, these important feminist books like these do tend to be neglected or kind of forgotten about or remembered in a weird way or the archives are all over do you know what I mean like it just happened so many times it's it's depressing yeah I mean it does seem extraordinary that one of the most important books of the 20th century that has been read by many millions of people in in English as well as in French and other languages should have been so so inadequately translated but we had after we published Toral Moy's piece there were there was a long series of exchanges on the letters page by people defending that translation. Yeah. I mean, of course, one of the things about about all translation is that there's no such thing as a perfect translation. It, it's impossible. Um, and there's this idea that there's a payoff between it's a, a literal translation and an, an elegant one. But maybe there's a, a better distinction, maybe, <clears throat> between the idea that a translation... I remember John Sturrock talking about this... Uh, a translation which never lets you forget that the book you're reading was not written in the language you're reading it in, and that that John believed there was a, you, the translator had an obligation to to the original language, not to let the reader think they were reading an English book. Against the idea that you should make it as as English as possible and kind of an English equivalent, but I suppose that's one of those things that a translation, it, in a way, you want as many different translations as possible. And that and that's the best way to move towards uh, to approach the idea of a of a impossible perfect translation by having as many as possible. I totally agree, and I think it's really important to have them for different generations as well. Um, like every twenty thirty years, if the book still li- lives, which it's it still does for me and my contemporaries, there should be a new translation. I think um, it'd be so cool to have lots of. Lots of them, you know. Yeah, and is that and is that likely to happen? I mean, I no. Ga- Gallimard hold it close. I don't think that there will be a, another one very, very soon. I sometimes dream of doing a, a Varlot doing one, like a like kind of an online and free translation, and seeing what that would make. Um, but you know, one has to have a million lives to do these sort of all the projects that you think of hope of doing. The second sex was 
published in France in November 1949 when Beauvoir was 41, is that right? She was born in 1908. Yeah. One of the things that you do so nicely in the piece is, is sort of tell the story of her life. Would you be able to do, do a little bit of that now, sort of the story of her life up to writing the book and beyond? Absolutely. So um, I like sort of to tell it using her sort of version, really, is um, the biography that I reviewed by Kirk Kirkpatrick is second. So she was also, well, the second major one in English. There's been lots of different ones. This short one by Lisa Pignonese and Deidre Bear was the first big one. But um, I like to return to where she started, which was saying that she was born in Montparnasse above the Café de la Rotonde um, in 1908 in January, 9th of January, I think it was. And so she was born into this sort of bourgeois family that her first, the first book, the first book of memoirs is called um, Memoirs d'une jeune fille rangée, which becomes Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter. And so the first book is this story of her breaking out of that bourgeois kind of kind of net framework um her mother was a uh, practicing and deep believing catholic to the end of her life she hoped that when Beauvoir pulled away from her mother and broke with catholicism and broke with the bourgeoisie her mother to the end of her life hoped that Beauvoir would come back to the catholic faith so you know she was the early pictures of her are kind of she's got these beautiful curls and a white dress that's so kind of starched and perfect and she's really living that sort of life with you know, kind of going out to the park for a walk and she was taught at home for a long time. It's almost extraordinary that she did break from that because how what other, how did she do it? Why would she think of something different from this kind of Catholic bourgeois life? But it was sort of, it was reading. Her father was kind of a sort of extraordinary person. He really enjoyed like theatre and he was really good at reading out loud. And so that side, artistic side came through and it was the people that she met as well at her. She went to this Catholic school called Le Cour d'Azir, which is quite a fancy um, private Catholic school. And there she met, um, when she was 10, this other girl who is called Zaza. Her name is Elizabeth Mabi, but she was called Zaza. And it was Zaza's kind of vitality. And she was sort of naughty and she was like good at things that someone wasn't good at. And she was cleverer maybe slightly cleverer than Simone good at school in that sort of kind of Ferrante way um and it was through all those friendships and those different reading and um also just sort of looking at her mother and thinking I don't know if I want to be chained to a sink for all my life what else could I do um and she was really very determined to carry on with her studies she made it to the Sorbonne at the Sorbonne was where she met all these people at Merleau-Ponty Zaza was still with her um and it's where she met Sartre she met Sartre incredibly young she was 20 21 and with Sartre she would they were studying for this thing called the aggregation which is a philosophy exam where anyone across France can sit it and it will give you access to be able to teach philosophy in schools and the year that she took it she came Sartre came first and she came second um but they had revised together and in fact it was Sartre's second time of taking the exam so lots of people say actually he he was sort of the the examiners had some discretion about where they placed people and he um was thought to because he had taken it twice and also because he was a normalia he sort of the Econormal and Beauvoir was just um at the Sorbonne couldn't go to the Econormal women weren't allowed isn't that right to go to the Econormal yeah Exactly. At that point, they weren't yet. And then it sort of began for her, I think. She had some sense. She always sort of needed someone else to 
think her thoughts and write what she wanted to write. It was like first with Zaza and it's always strange to say this, but she, Zaza died unexpectedly. Zaza died when she was like 21, 22. She caught, I don't even know what, they don't even know what she caught, but she died within sort of days, in a, within a week. And that astonished, devastated kind of changed Beauvoir completely. And she's carried this idea with her for a long time that Zaza had died so that she could be free, which in itself, I suppose, when I say it out loud again, it sounds such a Catholic idea. Um, I don't know, I suppose when you have feel like you have a duty to do, use your life in a certain way from a very young age, again, from 21, around the time of knowing Sartre, that must change how you think, what's the point of writing and what's the point of being? And and I think, weirdly, that can be quite good for a writer, even though, of course, you'd never, you'd never want your best friend to die just to know have that knowledge. So around sort of the aggregation, then she started to teach philosophy in schools. This was a period where she was still with Sartre and they started this idea of the pact, which was that they were each other's essential love, that they could have a contingent lovers. And they taught in different cities, didn't they? They weren't... No, they didn't live together. They weren't together. I yeah. think ever, I don't think, actually. No, they didn't. They never lived together. And they were in different cities. So she was down in the south in Marseille. And that was a period of her life I was really interested in. She was kind of... She was starting to teach. She was starting to think about what she wanted to do with her life. She was starting to write, but she began to write all sorts of different things. She'd write philosophy and then she'd write a novel and she never really liked her novels and she'd leave them aside and then she'd carry on again. Um, and she she was interested in what her, what her independence was. So when they were divided, Sartre did say, well, why don't we get married? Because, you know, that then we could be in the same place. And she said no. Um, and she... She tried out living complete, you know, completely free, independent ways. So she would do these insane hikes across, like, um, in a pair of espadrilles carrying a basket with a banana. That was, like, all she would carry for the days going across the Colonque, which are these kind of, like, inlets at the bottom of France, around by Marseille. And would try and imagine what, like, freedom was and think things through, I guess. Um, when they were divided by the war, when it started in 39, I think that's when they started to miss him and started to think things through in a different way again it was another big shock that made her start to kind of realize that some of these drafts could maybe maybe she should put a bit more effort to finishing some of these books and where where was she during the war so she moved around which she shouldn't really have done um she it was like she was one of those people who would be defying the corona lockdown like she she wasn't that happy to be divided from him so she would sometimes move to the south. She would move between the Vichy uh, across the line sometimes. She talked for a bit. She came back to Paris when Sartre was released from prisoner of war camp. He was, um, because of his, Sartre's had really bad eyes. He was, uh, he didn't get caught because he had bad eyes, but he had a very kind of boring, he wasn't on the front line. He was in France, I think observing the weather, I think it was. So he, he was caught uh, quite early and then, managed to escape or get out of prison and she so then they were reunited in Paris again towards the liberation so kind of 43 44 and then there's this extraordinary time and I think this is one of the reasons France bounced back really quickly from after the war where they were liberated Paris was liberated in 44 and they had almost a year where people would write and meet before the real war was over um and I think that that was one of the reasons they produced these extraordinary books in that period. Like Sartre was writing uh, No Exit, Nausea had already come out. Um, he was writing Being a Nothingness. She was starting to write L'Invité, um, She Came to Stay. 
And so when, the, when they were finally liberated and he could print things again and could be in the world again, they had all these, in, like, these incredible books and these parties and uh, had a terrific time. And had they already, when was Le Temps Moderne founded? Was that... that was just after the war too. And I think that they were quite good at working in groups at that time or meeting in groups. So they had this resistance group, which was sort of a bit... Well, they tried and realised that other people were doing it better, so gave up on it. But Le Temps Moderne started just after the war, yeah. Again, this, yeah, the title of the modern times, like, let's look at what's going on, let's publish. That, that was a really important place for the beginnings of all of their writings, that circle. And in fact, the second sex first appeared in Le Temps Moderne. Uh, and the other thing about the end of the war, I guess, is this when her life starts to change. And another bit of her life I really like is um, she started to do these long trips and the first big trip she did after the war was to America where she did a sort of lecture tour like she went to all the women's colleges and she went to New York um this is brilliant piece actually by Michael Rogan I've always really I thought that they've gone back to that piece millions of times and sent it to so many friends because it really captures exactly what happened to a bullfrog when she went over to America. You landed in New York and had the kind of partisan review crew. And that was that. So that piece it was um, in the LRB in nineteen ninety eight when the when Beauvoir's letters to to Nelson Algren were published. Yeah, that and a new translation they made of America Day by Day, which is um, Beauvoir's book. One of her, f- yeah, maybe her first book in English, which was uh, an account of her her travels across America. And yeah, so in that period, she landed in this kind of divided... Well, in America, it was an interesting point in its kind of formation of its kind of national literature. You had on one side, you had Faulkner and James, uh, which is the more New York kind of partisan review side, kind of more modernist, high kind of saying like America can do, American literature can be this sort of complex European style thing. And on the other side, you had people like the people who became Beauvoir's friends, so Richard Wright um, and, and Nelson Algren, who was, I think, the, one of the most important people in her life, really. Um, and the story of how they got together was quite fun. Like, she was in Chicago for her sto- for her, uh, her lecture tour and looked him up, like, rang him up, and he basically put the phone down on her, and she kept on ringing, and he finally gave in. And they went out for this kind of, like a proper night out. Like they went out and they went to the like bad side of Chicago and got drunk and danced with all the bums. And just, she was really shown a different sort of America and like, I mean, deeply, deeply fell in love with him. I mean, her alliance was such, she was always intellectual and lasted her whole life through, but it wasn't always passionate. And the other affairs she had, I was reminded of when Michael Rogan reminded me that she broke with the other people she was sleeping with when she met Algren. And that makes sense to me. Like she was just, she, there was no one else for her in that period. Um, and I don't know, for me, what's so interesting about that is that, you know, they say happiness writes white or whatever, but Beauvoir wrote Second Sex when she was in love with him. And he wrote The Man with the Golden Arm, which won the National Book Award. Like they, they found something really special. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours. 
so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. One of the really interesting things about her falling in love with him and in it with, with America, with the side of America, is we're so used to stories of Americans and English people going to Paris and the romance of France and the idea, and the idea of this incredibly glamorous, romantic French person going to America and kind of seeing it sort of turning that journey back to France. Yeah, it had huge kind of appeal for her, um, America, not just because it is kind of kind of material comforts but just how interesting and alive it was i mean politically they she her and sartre chose kind of russia over america in the kind of cold war sense but as a country sort of in the middle of becoming itself or becoming kind of in its years, she was really she was really taken by it and she she didn't just go to new york and California she saw like New Mexico she did loads more traveling with um Nelson as she went back and forward it's so interesting that sh- Chicago sh- for me should be the place where she really loves falls in love with America um kind of dirty and real and brash and big and I don't know I, I get it I totally get it <laughs> and it's where um this may be the moment to talk about that the photograph that I think is it fair to say that you chose to to illustrate the piece with I mean it appears very small in the lobby it's only one column but it's a it's a photograph that was taken of her in Nelson Agron's bathroom wearing nothing as you describe it wearing nothing but heels and putting her hair up and since and since the piece has been published that people including Kate Kirkpatrick has written to the editor to, to complain about it to say that it was I mean it begins by saying would we ever publish a piece about a male philosopher illustrated with a nude photograph and the other thing about it, which it wasn't sort of so obvious from the photograph, is that it was that the photographer Art Shea has since said has said that he he took the photograph without her consent. So, could you talk us through why you wanted to use that photograph, and also if your thoughts about it have changed? Mm, yeah, there were so many images of Beauvoir, um, and the, so the main image when I, I think of her is her sitting at the cafe that's the thing I imitated when I was 18. Like that was the main image. Um, but I guess as I've gone on reading her and thinking about her, it is the stuff that the stuff that's a bit more challenging and difficult that I found appealing about her. It's one of the reasons I think I can keep on going back to her. And that picture sometimes just makes me, in, when it was published on the front cover of the Nouvelle Observateur, they put La Scandaleuse on the front. And i that's the side to her that I actually quite like, that she was willing to say that in public, in the Manifesto um, 343, that, you know, I had an abortion. Who knows if she actually had had an abortion? That she was willing to use her fame in certain different ways. And that seems to me of a piece of kind of her image. I, I actually didn't know about Arche having taken the photo without her consent so the story goes that um Algren didn't have a bath actually in his apartment and asked his friend Art Shea to take his um uh, French girlfriend to another apartment to have a bath 
And I don't think it was even Art Shea's apartment. <laughs> so it wasn't Algren's, it wasn't Beauvoir's, it wasn't Art Shea's. And he took the photo. When you see from the original, you can see that it's through the doorway and you can take the photo. He took the photo then and she turned around and said, oh, you naughty boy. Um, so she clearly was saying, I didn't, you know, I didn't want you to do that. I didn't know that before um, I used the photo. And I was thinking this morning, why didn't I question that? a new trait of woman you should always think about who's looking at them and why and for what reason and what do they get out of it and part of me was thinking one I think she's really beautiful in that photograph she looks like a late Degas the way she's standing she's she's got her heels on she's it's a bit different from getting out of the bath and be I don't know like it just it seemed to me like posed basically and beautiful and almost the way it was posed recalled for me the late Degas so made me think okay this must be the you know it didn't make me think that she hadn't consented to it um and now I I know this for me it's a bit of a piece of all the other things I know about her that I don't like um and I don't feel it's my role to 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 eliminate certain things um so so I don't like the fact that she when she seduced her pupils I don't like the fact that she seduced people I don't like the fact that she passed them on to Sartre I don't like the fact that she betrayed her friend Olga with her husband for 10 years um there are lots of things that I find difficult about Beauvoir's life the way she behaved especially when she's supposed to be a philosopher and so I think it has to stand in a way to sort of say as a symbol of that kind of difficulty about her life that we can't assimilate it and in some ways we just have to sort of accept it um I don't know I was chatting with this with a friend who reminded me that Heidegger was really into naturism and I thought maybe that's what the LLB should do the next time we have a piece about Heidegger put in a picture of him with his Freikorperkultur and maybe that would make it more even I don't know I still think it's a beautiful photograph but it, it troubles me now when I look at it when I put myself in the position of it I also wondered if it was taken by it's good to know the story because I wondered if it was taken by Algren because it for me it's just it's the gaze of a lover she looks loved she looks admired um and that interests me the way Algren looked at her because his his letters to her haven't yet been published um and I am really looking forward to reading them when they finally are and how how long did she stay in America? Oh well, she she was there just for three months, and then she just kept on going back. Um, Pete, Michael Rogansby's reminded me that Algren couldn't get a passport because of his communist sympathies. So when he applied for it in fifty three, he was refused. So he couldn't really see her. Um, but they did have this break, so she kept on going back, and they would travel together. And obviously, they'd live for those three months where they could be together. Um, but he. She didn't tell him at the beginning of one of the trips until the late late forties that um, she she had to leave a month early. I mean, right? That was stupid. She says it's stupid in her books that she shouldn't have done that, but she didn't. And he he was really hurt. Now Gwen was hurt, and they didn't talk for quite a long time. And she always felt she had to be in Paris. That that was where her life was. Her intellectual life was her her language. Her her actual her language, like being in French, being a writer. You sort of need to be in that place. I, I don't know if I agree with her, but I I can see why she thought that. And also to give all that up, to give all that up for a man would be would have been very disappointing well, if you'd done that. If she'd sort of given up that side of herself and, and the importance of Paris and Yeah, but she was she would still have been a writer, she was a different sort of writer, I think. I don't know, one would say for a man, but what about for love? Like you're supposed to give up things for love, aren't you? Um and she she was happy and she wrote well. 
that's why I sort of think, why wouldn't, why couldn't she be there? I mean, other people say to me, oh, you know, in the 50s in Chicago, it's a really difficult society. She wouldn't have thrived there. And her, her, her English was um, kind of idiosyncratic and fun. And you can see it in her letters to Algren, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrific. And I don't know what, could she have written the second sex in English? I don't know. I don't know, maybe I'm more romantic than you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if it f- fast forward a bit that the arrival of the 60s and 60s feminism and what that meant for her and how people thought about her and how she thought about thought about it and what that yeah. meant um, it's really interesting her in the 60s because obviously she followed a lot of the time from the, f- so the 50s through she spent a lot of time in Russia and she was much more interested in kind of internecine kind of leftish leftist um squabbles in France and also the general like international where's the left going in that whole post-war period but in the 60s that changed quite drastically and she really did get get deeply involved with the um with the um women's liberation movement in France and it challenged her like reading some of these books that came out in the kind of late sixties and the early seventies. She read loads of things. She read the scum manifesto. She read like she was fully part of the, um, mouvement de liberation de femmes, which met at her flat. Like they did this stunt, as I've mentioned, this say announcing all these women from Catherine Deneuve to normal secretaries that had abortions to try and change the abortion law. She was really involved in that, but she did have to revise her own views because in the second section she said, Oh, it's pretty much done. It's one. We've got what we wanted. And then she was like looking back at it thinking, Jesus Christ, no, we haven't got what we wanted. And what do we do about it? And she was very effective actually as a campaigner because she was so famous um so she could really get audiences with people i mean you know when her Sartre went to egypt they hung out with nasa like you know, nasa kind of released prisoners because of they asked for it and so she was able to speak to the ministers and get these things done um and she was she she was she actually worked in solidarity quite well like i think old feminists don't always do that but she really saw that she could have an alliance with the younger ones and and then she really changed something. And the laws did change at that period in France that they, they do have, um, abortion is now, um, they have a modern abortion law and um, she did a lot for that. Also, she <laughs> it's quite funny because considering everyday sexism is such a different thing now to kind of a modern, a younger woman, but she had a column in the Tom Modern called Everyday Sexism and it was literally about that sort of thing of I walked down the street and got whistled at. So she had a sense of, the small things being like the, the smaller um, violations being as important as the bigger ones that had to get a modern divorce and modern abortion law, how to get a, um, a law against uh, sex discrimination in France. So I really love that period of her life too. She was very cool then. She marched as well. Like there's those cool photos of her marching. One of the things about her constantly changing is that the, the idea in that she put forward in the second sex that, one isn't born a woman one becomes a woman and that's reflected in the title of Kirkpatrick's book is becoming Beauvoir and that is a continuous process it's not as if you spend 20 years becoming a woman and then you're fixed in in the concrete block or that it's a it's a constant process throughout the whole of all of one's life Mm, exactly and the becoming what interests me in the becoming is like where do you get the ideas for the becoming from right so Beauvoir's working with this kind of bourgeois catholic notion of how women should be 
and then trying to reform that at different stages and like really failing at some points and then at other points really getting somewhere. Um, and it's the, the details of that. You were talking about the details of this everyday sexism column she had and how that she, how she pulled together those showed how sexism worked through tiny details. And it's through, and in some ways becoming has the same sort of thing. Like where, where do women get the ideas of what they can be from and how do they use them and how do they work against them? And um, that was the whole point of the second sex to kind of lay out all of these ideas that this is what psychoanalysis says. This is what Marxism says. This is what our literature says. This is what our lives say and what women, what mothers tell daughters. I mean, mothers have the most extraordinary power over telling their daughters what becoming is, what becoming a woman is. And one of the, I put it in the piece, but one of the most striking images is of this, of thinking of the child Beauvoir washing dishes with her mother. Like that's a thing I've had for my life. I remember like folding sheets with my mother and that can be quite a powerful idea of what you think a woman is. And like an idea that makes you think if this is what a woman is, then do I really want to become that? (laughs) It's you want to stay a girl. Didn't she describe herself looking out the window and seeing the woman in the next apartment doing the same thing? You described this, this mise on a beam of... Yeah, exactly. So this that kind of Parisian view of this kind of close city and just seeing every other woman doing the doing the dishes, that wouldn't happen now. You'd see a man, or you would, you know, like it wouldn't be the same. I hope but, so. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it, that idea of God, that is what that's where I have to fit in this little square and ever receding. It's a sort of horror vision. But it also, but it's something. This is what I need to escape from. Yeah. This is what I need freedom from. And this, yeah. And yeah. And so then, but maybe she overstepped at points because she, in her life and in the sort of, like, did she, like, was it a good idea to go into that pack with Sartre? Like, was that is that what freedom is? I couldn't say for sure. I, I, you can see that it didn't really make her happy. And what is the point of freedom if it doesn't make you happy? And did that that pact lasted until Sartre's death. Yeah, it really matured and changed into a, like a purely intellectual one. So she would still, she worked at his apartment um, every afternoon. So they still, and talked everything over and understood jointly that they that they could do a lot together. Um, interestingly, he wasn't that good on the feminist stuff. He never really got involved in that um, and didn't sort of just saw as it as her sort of thing. I mean, he supported her and he, you know, he was totally there at the beginning of writing The Second Sex and pushed her to look at it more carefully, but he didn't, he wasn't on the barricades with her, uh, barricades, he wasn't on the marches with her. He wasn't interested in that, fem- the feminist stuff. Um, and he said that when he, when he died, she climbed onto his, bo- she sort of, she slept on his corpse. Is that <laughs> astonishing? Image? Yeah, it's the most amazing, astonished scene. Yeah, incredible scenes. She was there, He'd been ill for a while and he had these gangrenous sores on his body and she climbed, you know, when she realised that he died, she sort of climbed onto his body. It's such a, a visceral image. And now death is sort of happens, I don't think it happens as kind of bodily as that somehow, especially in this whole period where we know people are dying away from the people that they love. She climbed on that body and she just they had to stop her because of the gangrene. Um, but they put a sheet over him and she just, she lay on him and fell asleep with him, with his dead body. And that was what, in 1980 when, when she was 70, 72. Yeah. yeah. She'd feared him dying for almost her whole life because she knew him since she was 21. And the, at the funeral, she just, yeah, she just, she was drunk for the whole thing. And then she collapsed. And she had pneumonia straight after. 
in that sort of way where like when the intellectual support or the kind of the reason for living goes and the kind of bodily body kind of concurs you know the body says yeah you're right let's give up for a bit but she still but she still had you know the, the other people who's so important to her yeah. that sylvie in the, the last six years of her life and there's this wonderful bit where you say that one of the one of the last things she did before dying was trying to persuade her nurse not to vote for jean-marie le pen which is i don't know if she succeeded at that <laughs> politically active <laughs> let's hope so but yeah politically active to the end and you said that at her funeral that um landsman read the last paragraph of force of circumstance and i wondered if you if we could end now with you you reading that I loathe the thought of annihilating myself quite as much now as I ever did. I think with sadness of all the books I've read, all the places I've seen, all the knowledge I've amassed and that will be no more. All the music, all the paintings, all the culture, so many places, and suddenly nothing. They made no honey, those things. They can provide no one with any nourishment. At the most, if my books are still read, the reader will think, there wasn't much you didn't see, but that unique sum of things the experience that I lived, with all its order and all its randomness, the opera of Peking, the harina of Huelva, the candomblé in Bahia, the dunes of El Oued, Wabanzia Avenue, the dawns in Provence, Tiryns, Castro talking to 5,000 Cubans, a sulphur sky over a sea of clouds, the purple holly, the white nights of Leningrad, the bells of the liberation, an orange moon of Piraeus, a red sun rising of the desert, Torcello, Rome, all the things I've talked about, others I've left unspoken, there is no place where it will all live again. Thank you very much. You can read Joanna's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Jeremy Harding on Extinction Rebellion and Frederick Jameson on Conrad. And you can read Michael Rogan and Torrell Moy's pieces on Beauvoir in our online archive. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic.